You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is Tiffany Yu. She's a disability activist, CEO and founder of Diversibility, host of Tiffany and You, a social impact podcast. She's also on the San Francisco Mayor's Disability Council, a three-time TED Talk speaker, and has a list of many more accomplishments that you can check out on her Wikipedia page. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Thanks so much, Felicia. I appreciate the shout out to that Wikipedia page. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think all of my guests have that. That's kind of unusual. Kudos to you for having that. I've had you on my radar for some time to be interviewed. I learned about you and your work through TaiwaneseAmerican.org. And I know that back in 2014, you spearheaded something called the Taiwan Necklace Project to raise money for ITASA, the Intercollegiate Taiwanese American Students Association, which I think is one of our many connections. By the way, how much did you raise for ITASA through the Taiwan Necklace Project? That's a great question. So we, I believe the first year we raised 2800 and then... And then we actually handed the project over to Itasa. So I think they then collected, they then sold them and, and took whatever. Um, and then we actually reignited the project. I want to say in 2020, 2021 timeframe. Uh-huh. Um, and again, I believe it was TACL, which is a, I want to say a sister organization to yes. Itasa, uh, ended up, ended up doing some version of it as well. So I don't actually have the the full numbers, but that first year it was almost 3000, which to me, you know, my first fundraiser and my first foray into entrepreneurship to be totally transparent. Really? Um, I, actually, I actually thought that was a success. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. And I didn't realize it came back so many times. That's great. I wanted to, of course, have you talk about your company, Diversibility. And when you came up with the idea for it, I understand you're a senior at Georgetown. And what was your original vision for Diversibility and the work that it would do? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So before I go into that, I, I thought it'd be important to just share a little bit of context. And I, I call this context our disability origin stories. And not everyone feels comfortable sharing their disability origin stories. And so, of course, just balancing that fine line. And I'm actually glad that wasn't the first question you asked. Um, But I became disabled at the age of nine uh, as a result of a car accident. I permanently paralyzed one of my arms, shattered a couple bones in my leg that would then heal. And my dad, who was driving, unfortunately passed away. So I wanted to share that context because it not only highlights that I am disabled, but that there was trauma and grief involved in that origin story as well. So fast forward to 2009, as you mentioned, I was a senior at Georgetown. And at this particular point in time, I had also had experience co-founding Georgetown's Taiwanese American Club. So I had seen that whole process through before uh, targeting or spotlighting or showcasing one aspect of my identity and then creating a community around it. So as I started to evolve in my own consciousness around disability, I started to really think more critically around, is this an identity that I can create a culture and a community around? So the original goal was at that particular point in time, I had actually never told anyone about the car accident publicly. And even when I did, Waterworks, you know, uh, there was just so much pain and hurt involved in that experience. So I call it Diversibility 1.0, or it would be 0.0. I'm not quite sure which point it is. But the original idea was, can we bring people together, both disabled and non-disabled people, 
to talk about our disability lived experiences. Because one of the things I had realized was that when we don't talk about something, at least for me and my disability, is because I had so much shame around it. And how can I let that shame not have that power over me by telling people what had happened and validating my story? But I will also say that outside of the storytelling aspect of it, which I think is super important, Really, I just felt so alone growing up. I didn't see anyone who looked like me. And because I didn't see anyone who looked like me, I internalized a lot of really negative and harmful messages around my own sense of self-worth as a disabled person. And so the creation of diversability, you know, this idea of can I create a community around an identity was really centered on can I not be so alone in this experience? Now here's a clip from Tiffany's first TEDx talk, The Power of Exclusion. This story begins right here in Bethesda, Maryland. Let's go back 20 years to Thanksgiving weekend. I'm nine years old and a fourth grader at Bannockburn Elementary School. That weekend, I was so excited about turkey, spending time with my family, and most importantly, no school. That Saturday was my dad's birthday, November 28th, and I don't know about you, but I've always loved birthdays. And the next day, Sunday, was this seemingly ordinary Sunday, and I thought of me going back to school after a long weekend at home. My mom had to travel for a business trip, so I knew I would miss her, so a couple of my siblings, Peter and Melissa and I, thought that we would go say our goodbyes to her off at Dulles Airport. And we did that. But on the way home, something happened. My dad lost control of the car, And the next thing I knew, he had floored it on the gas pedal, and we shot across this empty highway. That scene ended pretty abruptly. When I woke up, I was laying down, and it must have been really late because I was so tired. But there was this man hovering over me, and he kept forcing my eyelids open. And as I came to my senses a little bit more, I realized that I was in this helicopter ambulance on my way to the hospital. And that man hovering over me was a medical professional who thought that perhaps the last time I closed my eyes would be the last. So it turns out I didn't make it back to school the next day or for a little while. I ended up spending three weeks in Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and I broke a couple bones in my leg, so I was in a wheelchair for a few months. And I stretched the nerves in my right arm, the brachial plexus, which is an injury that is still with me to this day. So I have a little bit of a funny hand. But this isn't just a story about a couple broken bones or a nerve injury. Not everyone made it out of that car accident alive. My dad didn't make it. And so when I think back about that weekend, I thought it was supposed to be about family and gratitude and abundance and celebration of life. But now, it was about loss. Can you talk about how long it took for diversibility to become a full-time thing and what was the turning point that made that happen? Yeah, great question. So 2009 until now we're recording this in 2021, it's been 12 years. And in a way, and and I will say I've been disabled for uh, this year will be 24 years. So I spent half of my time as a disabled person running and spearheading this organization. So after I graduated from university, I said, see you later, the Taiwanese club at Georgetown and see you later, Diversibility. And I went to go work on Wall Street. But what Diversibility had given me was confidence in the fact that yes, one of my arms is different, 
but I deserved my place here and I deserve to take up space just like the rest of you investment bankers, which is the job I was in at the time. So I had never anticipated either coming back to diversity and was really unclear about what role my voice played within a broader disability rights movement. Fast forward to 2014-2015 era, I started receiving messages from people I never met before who had come across articles uh, in in my local in the local Georgetown paper about everything that we had done in those couple of years and some of the emails or, or tweets I got were you know what's the latest update on diversity might know some people who can help or here's my story I'm really touched by what you've built and I really am looking for a platform to share my own story one day. And so 2014, 2015 timeframe, I was still working in finance full time. I said, you know what? I feel like the side hustle generation is a thing these days. Let me see if I can try it out. And so diversity reemerged. And the easiest way I can explain it to people is that we were kind of like a meetup group. We were like the cool disabled kids who just wanted to get together every once in a while and wanted to hang out and wanted to invite people who didn't share our experience to come uh, and become our friends and develop that level of intimacy. Fast forward, uh, so, so up until this time, now we're in 2015 to 2017 timeframe. I'm running diversity on the side. I'm looking at spreadsheets in my nine to five and I move out to San Francisco for a job. And after six months at that job, it wasn't the right fit and I got fired. And I, I, I didn't tell people that that's actually what happened for a long time because I had shame around getting fired, right? I, I've become so fascinated by the things that cause of shame. You know, even for both of us as Taiwanese women, I was embarrassed by what was in my lunchbox growing up. Um, but We'll, we'll put a little pin in that. So 2017, I got fired. I remember the day. It was March 3rd, 2017. I walked in to go meet with my manager. She said, unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. And at that point, I said, you know, why don't I try this diversity thing until I find my next job? And now here we are four and a half years later. Well, thank you for sharing that. I can definitely understand the embarrassment or shame around talking about being fired from a job, whatever the reason may be. So I thank you for sharing that. For people who don't know much about the space that you work in, the disability advocacy space, could you tell me more concretely about the work that diversity does and the impact of its work? Yeah, for sure. So Diversability, so the disability space, I see it as like a huge ecosystem. So not only is there diversability and, and you read parts of my bio, you can find it on my Wikipedia page. So I have a couple affiliations that sit outside of diversability as well. But diversability at its core to me is really how can we improve the livelihoods and the lives of disabled people? And you know, very lofty mission. So then you're like, okay, let's get more concrete. What does that mean? So what diversity does, if we look at what your overall well-being means, it is the intersection of your physical health, your mental health, and your social health. So oftentimes we focus a lot on your physical health and your mental health, and we forget your social health, having healthy relationships, human connection is a core part of how we feel well. You know, if we look at this past pandemic, we have life hacked many ways to stay connected digitally, right? We also realized that social isolation is not sustainable, but it is an experience that disabled people just know so intimately and so well. So anyway, so the TLDR, the too long didn't read or the too long didn't listen is 
social isolation doesn't work. <laughs> um, and so why is it that disabled people are one of the most socially isolated, socially excluded groups out there? Um, which then you enter diversibility, which is how can we make disability the reason to belong, not a reason to exclude? And more concretely, what that looks like coming back to this whole idea of the meetup groups is diversibility to me is kind of like an events and a community building organization. So through our events, how can we introduce new topics to potentially non-disabled peers, but keep it as, as disability centered as possible? Then in between those events happening, how can we bring people together to still continue the conversation? Um, and so that's really where diversibility sits. I'm happy to chat. I've got a couple other affiliations as well. Um, I run a micro grant for disability projects called the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter. Most of my advocacy comes through my work with the San Francisco Marriage Disability Council. But each one of those, again, I, I want to pinpoint to your listeners that each one of those is very specific. So diversibility to me is community social health. Then the Awesome Foundation is economic empowerment. And then the San Francisco Marriage Disability Council is advocacy, you know, local advocacy, local government, civic engagement. Sounds like a lot of education and awareness that you're creating a lot of awareness about the issues and needs. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'll highlight, too, is over the past year with everything that happened with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and and really just elevated consciousness around racial equity and how far we have to go there, mm -hmm. we started to realize that diversity could fill a space in terms of helping create a bridge between disability inclusion and the community that we've built, many of them who are self-employed or employed or looking for work. I mean, that, that just covers the whole, the whole gamut of employment. <laughs> right. Two, what does disability inclusion look like in your diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy? So not only do we have kind of the community arm, but our business arm is more so now that we have all of the voices, because there is a TED talk called The Danger of a Single Narrative. I, Tiffany, cannot be the sole representative of a disability experience. I'm a disability experience, but I'm right. one of a billion disability experiences. How can we bring that expertise that we've built, because now we have this community, and bring that into your workspaces to say, hey, have you thought about disability in terms of your DEI strategy? I wanted to fast forward a little bit because I know in uh, 2019, something happened. Could you talk about what happened in 2019? Yeah, um, great question. So it wasn't necessarily just 2019, but from 2017 until 2019, I noticed, and now looking back, now I know there was a period where I was very unwell. And the way that I look back at that period is very potentially random, you know, in my mind at the time, it wasn't emotional outbursts, feeling very depressed. And in 2019, or coming into 2019, I was actually at a New Year's party. And there was an experience it was kind of structured like a dinner theater, there was an experience where they asked, uh, you were brought into a room, and they asked you what your fantasy was. And the first thing that came to my mind was I just want my childhood back. I feel like at nine years old, I, I was nine years old one day and then come, you know, November 29th, 1997, that was the day of the car accident. On November 30th, I became like a 30 year old woman. Wow. Um, and so I just said to her, I said, I just want my childhood back. And so I ended up coming out and we had to share with our group. We shared with our group, our fantasies. 
And something ended up happening, which is there was a another attendee at the New Year's party who had heard that I just wanted to be a kid again. And she really wanted to make that a reality for me that night. But she asked me to kind of reshare the context over and over and over again with each new dinner party guest. And at that particular point in time, there's a difference. I've realized there's a difference between retelling a trauma versus reliving it. I know. I was thinking that could be very triggering for you to tell it over and over. My goodness. Correct. So circa 2017, I had just gotten fired from my job. A couple of other things were kind of happening that just made me really emotionally distressed all the time um, and really elevated levels where, yeah, we just, we just wouldn't know when an emotional outburst would come. So 2019 at this party and yeah, she's having me tell everyone and I got triggered and someone at the party actually came up to me and he said, Hey, Tiffany, I don't mean to pry, but do you have PTSD? Oh, wow. And I said, you know, that's a really interesting question because I've brought it up to my therapist multiple times, but when they run through the diagnostic of if I have daydreams or nightmares, I I just don't fit the quote unquote cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. And he said, I have PTSD and what I just saw looks exactly like it. Wow. And that actually became what I would call like a nine month journey. So that was from, you know, Jan 2019 until September Mm -hmm. of really, I think, doing the work and the reflection to say, am I really unwell? And there's this saying that I actually want to challenge, which is time heals all wounds. So I, I believed that trope. That time healed all wounds. And in 2019, it had been 22 years since the accident. And it was so intertwined with my disability work that why hadn't I healed yet? And what I've realized instead, I have have an addendum to that quote, time heals all wounds. It's time plus therapy plus a lot of inner work heals all wounds. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, so 2019, and I will say probably from 1997 until 2019, Either I was masking really heavily my PTSD, and and this happens a lot in in Asian communities. I actually, I recently just saw my mom and she told me, she told me that she was depressed. And so I asked her if she was seeking help and she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you just told me that you were depressed. And she's like, well, I didn't really mean it like that. Right. And so it's like, I guess one thing I'm learning or unlearning from my mom, you know, I have to remember, and I think you saw my Instagram post. I have to remember that it wasn't just a nine-year-old Tiffany who was in a car accident. It was a mother who had three of her four children in a car Mm -hmm. and lost her husband. Mm -hmm. And I never saw her be sad. Mm -hmm. So she didn't give me permission to be sad for a really long time. And then finally, I used to call it my grief monster. Now I see it as more of a gift, but finally my grief started to show because I couldn't hold it in my body anymore. So come 2019, uh, I then found another therapist and he said, Tiffany, you have PTSD. And interestingly enough, I don't think, I'm not quite sure what I was looking for from a diagnosis, But really, I think what I was hoping for was more of a validation that what happened to me at nine years old was not okay, Mm -hmm. right? And and I also, I think in this journey since, and I've been way more outspoken about the fact that I live with PTSD, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a stat out there that says about 10% of people who experience trauma experience something called post-traumatic growth, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, rather than being in the depths of a, a PTSD episode, 
you also find a new appreciation for life and, you know, see yourself thriving. And I've had experiences of those as well. So I just wanted to highlight for your listeners that I still continue to live with PTSD. I've learned how to manage my symptoms much mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. I, I can sense when I'm being triggered or when I feel like I might start to go down an unwell spiral again. But I also know I have access to post-traumatic growth. And I also, so many also's, I also want people to know that PTSD looks like a 33-year-old woman who's given three TED Talks. You know, (laughs) I think we have such a narrow view of who can get PTSD and what it looks like that I'm hoping that as we emerge through this pandemic, which we're still in, many of us will come out of it, especially I would say some of our frontline workers will come out of this with, with some of those symptoms and, and knowing, I don't know, I want people to know part of the reason why I'm so outspoken about it is I want people to know there are more of us out there than you think. And I, I don't want to have shame in addition to PTSD have power over me. So if I can just shed light on it and, and provide people an avenue to say that you're not alone if you've been through really hard traumatic things and this is the result of it, it's okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that's why I wanted you to talk about it because I think a lot of people are not aware of the different forms that it can come in and yours to come like 20 something years later to know that it could come like much later. What did you do to get over the trauma when it first happened when you're nine? Because you went on to go to Georgetown, you worked on Wall Street, um, you started diversibility, had so many accomplishments, but how did you function and what did you do initially after the accident? Yeah, such a great question. Um, I did nothing. Um, and, and honestly, uh, you, you mentioned you watched my, I have a Ted talk called the power of exclusion. Yes. Sometimes when I watch that talk, I cry because I cannot fathom what life must've been like for a nine-year-old Tiffany. And I have been on a journey over the past couple of months of reconnecting with people that I went to high school with. So I've, I'm now 15 years, 15 years since I graduated, but one of the things they tell me And now I'm putting all these puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. One of the things they tell me is they said, Tiffany, I knew about your arm, but I didn't know about the car accident. And the reason why I wanted to share that is that for many of us who experience trauma or ACE, adverse childhood experiences, as some other people uh, may call them, is we end up having selective memory. So to be honest, uh, that's actually part of the reason why I'm reconnecting with these high school classes is because I don't remember who I was in high school. I literally cannot remember age nine until 17, until I went to Georgetown. Maybe you blocked it out in some way. Yeah, it it was hard because within my Asian family, after the, one of the things that my mom does that I am unlearning is that we don't want to shed light on anything that might cause shame to our family or that may, or anything hard that happened to us. And so my mom, she didn't tell me, but she modeled for me that I shouldn't tell anyone about the car accident. I shouldn't tell anyone about my arm unless it's a need to know basis. So that was my PE teachers growing up, my physical education Mm -hmm. teachers. Mm -hmm. And I literally didn't even tell them. My mom wrote me a note. And I, the only thing I remember from that period, and, and I'm sure more of it will come back to me as time comes, but one of the memories, distinct memories that I have 
is every single year, my mom would write me a note to hand to my PE teacher. They would read the note. They would just look at me and they would nod and I would walk away. I wouldn't even use my voice, right? Which is so fascinating to me to Mm. now fast forward 20 years. And I'm just screaming out from the rooftops, like, look at my arm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And yeah, I, I really don't know how I functioned in those years. And I, I know I just mentioned this to you, but I just spent a week back home in the same childhood bedroom wow. that I grew up in, in mm-hmm. the years after the car accident. Mm-hmm. And I, I took a video of it on TikTok. But what I did was I cut out magazine clippings and made a collage on my wall. So when you walk into my bedroom, it is loud. It's got stuff all over the walls. It's got stuff everywhere. And it is very overwhelming for me to be in there. That was all left from your childhood. Your bedroom is the same as it was. Everything is the same. I'm going to send you the the TikTok video um, because it is, it is unreal that I lived in that. And to be honest, I wrote a piece a couple years ago as I was navigating my PTSD diagnosis and I, I referenced my bedroom as my bedroom prison. And wow. I use that wording because that is the place that I was by myself and I never left. Um, and I felt really alone in there. And I'm trying to like find some symbolism between why I hung all the things on the wall and then it's funny because any apartment that I've lived in since then, I've never hung anything on the wall. Mm-hmm. I actually just sold like two beautiful illustrations of like dresses or something mm-hmm. that were, you know, maybe like three feet by three feet. Mm-hmm. And they just sat on the floor <laughs> in these beautiful like frame boxes. And it's like, Tiffany, why, did, why didn't you ever hang on the wall? So I think that's a really great question. And I, I wish I wish I could tell you how I navigated through that, but I think the reality is that I didn't. Right. Well, that's why you had to deal with it 20 something years later. Yeah. Um, Going back to your work with diversibility, what do you think has changed in the time since you started it? What changes have you seen since you started your work with diversibility? Yeah, that is such a great question too. So there's a quote that I'm really inspired by, and it's from someone named Dr. Robert Bullard. And he is a professor at the forefront of the environmental justice movement. And he says, the fight for justice is a marathon relay. And the reason why I want to share that quote is because it it is reassuring to me that we will likely be fighting for justice one way or another in our entire lifetime. And for the next generation to come, they will also be fighting for justice, but it will look different. And so the fact that I've been able to sit in this space and watch it change over the past 12 years, I feel very grateful for. When I started this in 2009, our tagline or you know, our mission at the time was that we wanted to start a movement around disability pride. Not much has changed. Our current tagline is elevating disability pride together. But in 2009, when I told people that that's what I was looking to build with diversibility, the response that I got was, how can you be proud to be disabled? I don't understand what that word means or that phrase disability pride. Fast forward to 
2021, last year I was able to get our San Francisco mayor, London Breed, to declare July as Disability Pride Month. In 2015, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio did the exact same thing, declared July as Disability Pride Month. And now you're seeing so much of the disability community come together during the month of July to celebrate disability pride. And that's, I think, one of the bigger changes to me, which is really understanding that disability is a culture and a community that you can be a part of, you can find belonging in, you can find your sense of belonging, you can find pride in, you can find art and music and a lot of beautiful things. We're not a tragedy. We are not a medical diagnosis. We're actually people who have, who have been shaped, right, by our disability experience. So that's kind of like number one. And what I want to highlight in that, which leads to number two, is I think the biggest shifts have been within me. In 2009, I didn't know how to talk about the car accident or my arm in a way that didn't victimize me in my own story or wasn't seeking pity. Yeah, I I just think there was a lot of shame in it. And now come 2021, I don't know. I've, I found an entire community. I'm, I'm learning and unlearning some of the harmful messages that I developed about myself as a disabled person. And even if you watch that Ted talk, that power of exclusion, mm-hmm. I describe my paralyzed arm as my funny hand. And uh, now in 2021, that is not a way that I would describe my body or for that fact, describe anyone else's body, right? And so I also look at my own evolution through some of those captured videos to say in 2018, I talked about my arm as like Tiffany's funny arm, Mm -hmm. but now I'm just like, this is my disabled arm or it's my paralyzed arm. There's nothing funny about it because I love and accept my body as it is and the opportunities that it's provided me and also the ways I've had to life hack because my body's different. And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is the longest running Taiwan related podcast, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash talking Taiwan. Is there any news or any developments related to diversibility that you'd like to share or talk about? Sure. Um, I guess there are three things because all the good things come through. There are three things I'm excited (laughs) about. Number one, and I'm not quite sure if if they will still be available when this goes live, um, but we recently launched a campaign where anytime I get hired to give corporate workshops, my main message is if you walk away from this learning anything, I just want you to know that disability is not a bad word. And we need to unlearn the associations that we've created that we think disability is a, a, a bad thing or that we think disability means that we're broken or that we think disability means that we're not normal, et cetera, et cetera. So finally, we decided to put disability is not a bad word on a shirt. And uh, we launched the campaign in August of 2021, and it will end in mid-September. So if you missed the window, that's okay. But today we've actually sold, I think, over 80 shirts, which is pretty cool. It means that we have some level of influence. Congratulations. Within our community. Thank you. So that's update number one. Update number two is the most recent iteration of diversity has been expanding our community to create a collective called the Diversibility Leadership Collective. And 
our mission has always been around social health and community, of course, and peer support. But how can we take that to the next level? So our tagline for the Diversibility Leadership Collective is accelerating disability influence and leadership. So how can we create a curated space that creates more disabled thought leaders, creates more disabled TED talkers, creates more disabled corporate leaders? Um, whatever you define leadership as, we want to help you get there. Even if it's being a guest on podcasts, you know, learning how to pitch yourself to be a guest or make yourself visible enough so that people like Felicia can find can <laughs> find people like me, right? So, so that's the second update, and it it is actually our first foray into really exploring what sustainable revenue looks like for us. Because in the past, we've done sponsorships. Every once in a while, we'll do a workshop. Every once in a while, we'll do a branded post. But finally, we're like, here's a membership. Here's a subscription. Like, let's figure out if we can figure out a way that, you know, we're not looking at the calendar and being like, Q4 looks really heavy, but we've got nothing coming up in the second half of next year, you know? So trying to be a little bit more consistent, I think, with how we run the business. So people can go through, it's a sort of like a leadership training program sort of thing. Yeah, it's a it's a curated community where there are lots of visibility opportunities in there. We're hosting workshops every single week. You know, Felicia, you asked me, how do I become a TED Talk speaker? And that was actually one of the workshops that we that we ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of we've we've got upcoming workshops around how to network remotely. Um, we've got one around using your social media influence to actually become an influencer. How do you mm-hmm. monetize that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so really it's about a lot of personal branding, a lot of building thought leadership, um, thinking through visibility. Yeah, just thinking through what does leadership mean to you and what can we do to help get you to the next level? Right. Empowering other people. That's great. Exactly. So we actually, we launched that on the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was July 26th. So we're very young, not even a month yet mm-hmm. as of this recording. Um, but we've got 60 members so far and Wonderful. stuff happening every single week. Um, and then the final update I have is all, sits outside of diversity, but I've been thinking a lot about the goals of the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. And the last goal was what's called economic self-sufficiency. And I always like to provide definitions in case, you know, we're throwing around jargon that people aren't familiar with. And economic self-sufficiency is the idea that you have the money to cover your expenses, <laughs> And that is not something a lot of disabled people have access to. And I think I saw a stat from ACLU that says 48% of disabled adults earn less than $15,000 a year. And that could be, you know, other systemic factors in place of potentially needing, uh, needing government or public benefits or public support. But that is the one area of the ADA over the past 30 plus years that we haven't really seen progress in. And so a lot of my work has been thinking through how can we tackle building economic self-sufficiency in our community in creative ways. And that was a really great preamble to just say that I have launched an endowment fund at my alma mater at Georgetown that is going to fund disability related initiatives. Wow. Congratulations. It hasn't been formed yet. We got to fundraise oh, the thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but I've committed to seeding half of it. It takes 100K to get an endowment fund started. I don't know why I decided 50K. Thank you, Bitcoin, I guess I'll say. <laughs> um, but 
I also want to see community support come in. So I think as of, we launched this in June of 2021. So as about two months, we've raised about, the last I checked, it was probably 11K, probably the next time I get an update, I'm hoping it'll be around 15K, but that's 15K of the 50. That's the second half that needs to be raised. So you don't have to be a Georgetown student to donate, but if you do have the means, these are the three things that I'm pretty excited about because I also think, Georgetown is where I gained the confidence to say I'm a disabled person. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge all universities have some other, some other issues around equity. There's so much I want to do around tackling student loan debt and, and other things, but an endowment to me and what I'm really excited about and why I brought this up on this, even though it's not part of diversibility is that if you are a disabled student, And, or if you're disabled and you get the opportunity to go to a place like Georgetown, not even go to a place like Georgetown, but have your mind expanded so that you can even think you can create something like diversibility. That's something I want to put money behind because I guess my hope is, and looking, looking back at the past 12 years and hopefully many more years to come. And if not, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. But I hope that we, as an organization, as diversibility, helped move this conversation forward in a way that disabled people know, disabled people don't have to unlearn all of the things that I internalized growing up and that people know. And I said this at a conference the other day, I said, I just want people to know that when you are disabled, you are valuable and worthy just because you exist. Mm-hmm. And I think that we unfortunately, or I unfortunately internalized so many messages that I wasn't valuable and that I wasn't worthy because Mm -hmm. my body was different Mm -hmm. and also my mind because I also have PTSD. And I wanted to go back to something that you touched upon in preparing for this interview. I did look at your social media, your Instagram and different things. And I did notice the post that you referenced, the recent post that you had with your mom and how she told you that she felt like she was a failure as a mom. And in the post, you also mentioned uh, your mom's accomplishments. But what really struck me about that particular post was how you wrote that something I'm paraphrasing that a couple of years ago, your mother said that diversibility was monkey business. And I think that a lot of people who have chosen unconventional career paths can identify with this type of reaction from their parents. I'm wondering, how did you react to her saying that at the time? Because I understand that was a couple years ago. Did you ever have a discussion with her about it at the time? And how do you deal with that? What are your thoughts on this? Mm, such a such a powerful question. And I will say, I feel I feel really proud of that post because it also shows a lot of growth and confidence in me. Mm-hmm. Um, And I have to acknowledge, and I said this in the post too, my mom is a hero. I can only imagine what she experienced and really the reason why I do what I do is because she enabled that for me. Mm -hmm. But she made those comments in 2017, I want to say, or 2018. And I was actually on vacation with my sister and my brother-in-law and my mom And she said, very similar to the post, she said, she said, I'm ashamed of all of my kids. And my sister, Melissa, responded. And my sister said, well, what about Tiffany? Like, she just got featured in the Ford Foundation. She's done all of this incredible stuff for the disability community. Mm -hmm. And my mom goes, that's monkey business. And to be honest, that conversation ruined that vacation for me. I 
cried, not in front of my mom, but I cried the rest of the trip and I came home and I, I continue to hold those words really close to my heart. What I have learned is I, and I'm going to share, I'm going to share a revelation that I had recently and how it ties into all of this. But uh, my mom to me worked so hard And of course, with immigrant parents, the whole root of why we come to America is for a better life. Mm -hmm. My mom grew up during a war. She evacuated with the fall of Saigon. I mean, we're seeing a lot of parallels uh, happen now in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. but she, she came here for a better life and she worked really hard and super accomplished, right? You saw it in the post and very impressive, right? That is the word I would use to describe my mom was listening to a panel recently on the intersection of being disabled and Asian. And one of the panelists, Mia Ives-Rubley said, because we are disabled, we can never be the model minority. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so fascinating. First of all, we all know, or we're all learning that the model minority is a myth. Right. But if I look at my mom, to me, she embodies some version of that. Mm-hmm. And I think because that's what was modeled to me, that's what made me, you know, when you, you read my Wikipedia page, that's what made me want to do all of these things. Mm-hmm. But in her eyes, it was never enough, right? Because, and then I come back to Mia's words, which are, I will never be the model minority because I have a disabled body. Mm. So no matter what I do, the Georgetown, the Goldman Sachs, the Bloomberg, uh, I even worked for P. Diddy. I was sitting in on board meetings. It was like, <laughs> how, much, how much more accomplished can you get than that? It was never enough. Um, and after she, after she said that to me, it made me realize, and the person I was dating at the time, he said to me, your mom seems impossible to please. Hmm. And at that point I decided to, I don't know if forgiveness is the right word, but I decided to forgive and let go of the fact that I will never be her model minority, Hmm. I guess is what I'll say, how I'll phrase that. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't wait to show her the receipts from, the, from this year to show like, hey, we actually do have money coming in. People do actually find what I have to say and my lived experience valuable, valuable and worthy of real dollars. So, so I, yeah, I, I will say there, there has been a transition, but at the time, her words went straight to my heart. I can uh, definitely identify with that. I won't go into that too much. My dad was an economist, and I think a lot of times he didn't understand a lot of the things that I did because being an economist, he was very practical-minded. And I did have to come to a point where I understood that that was his perspective and his value judgment, and I have my own perspective and ideas of what I want to do and you know, and just kind of agree to disagree sort of thing. Yeah, isn't it ironic that our parents made so many sacrifices so that we could not be like them. Um, I want to shift a little bit and talk about 2020. So many things changed so many of our lives forever with the pandemic. And I know that during that time, you launched your podcast, Tiffany and You. Could you talk a little bit about your podcast, like describe what it's about, what you've learned, and some of your takeaways from Mm. doing the podcast? Yeah. First of all, having a podcast, having a podcast is so fun. It's a lot of work that I don't think people realize. Right. But For me, it was what I have learned is that 
the podcast has been a way for me to deepen my relationship with people that I have known and admired for a long time. And so that was, I, I think to me, that's the, the greatest thing that I've learned from the podcast. But it was also a way for me to use whatever platform I had built and whatever audience I had built to introduce my listeners to new ideas. So my podcast is called Tiffany and You. I wanted to create like a whole empire around Tiffany and You, but I haven't quite figured it out yet. So on its own, the name doesn't mean much other than my first and last name with an ampersand in between. But I wanted to call it Tiffany and You to be kind of like a living room conversation among friends. So Tiffany and Felicia, you know, uh, whoever I'm chatting with at the moment. And over time, the podcast has become very social impact focused. And the tagline of the podcast is conversations that matter. And we've explored a lot of different topics, some disability related, also some not. And more recently, I guess I've just become interested as I think through, what is it? As I think through, I guess this season, and I mean, we're only in season two now, but a big part of the podcast was really, I'm curious and I want to understand. I want to understand how, how my friends are doing in June, 2020, who are black. I want to understand how my friends are in March, 2021, who are Asian. There's so much, I mean, both of those are related to racial trauma. There's just so much happening in our world that if one conversation can broaden someone's mind, and actually not only does it broaden my own mind, but the people who listen, that's, I think, how we create a more empathetic world is through that level of intimacy. I mean, this is why I love podcasts, right? Because you actually are able to have a 40 minute to one hour conversation with a person And you develop a level of intimacy when you talk to a person for that long. And your questions are, and you've done tons of research too, right? So you've done a lot of background work and then we're coming in and we're having a a level 2.0 conversation, (laughs) Right. right? And all of that to say that intimacy to me is how we create allies and understanding. Because if we don't know people, then we can other them. We can create them as a them. But if we actually feel like we're a fly on the wall of a conversation between two people really digging into, you know, you've asked me some questions I'd, I've never gotten asked before. That's, yeah. And, and I, hope, I hope your listeners walk away from this conversation knowing, knowing a lot about me, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, it is always my hope that through the stories or experiences of my guests that it somehow inspires, informs, or educates my listeners that they learn something from people's personal stories. Have there been any particularly memorable episodes or guests? Ah, such a good question. I feel like every single new episode that comes out is like my new favorite episode. Yeah, you um, have a lot of really great guests and topics. Of course, I've also listened through a lot of your episodes <laughs> too in preparing for this. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me think. My favorite episode, I will say I did an episode with Alex Locust, who is also known as Glamputee. And one of the new ideas or one of the many ideas that 
he introduced to me is the idea of possibility models. And he, he adapted that phrase from Laverne Cox, but mm. instead of a role model, it's a possibility model. So you don't have to mm. follow in someone's exact footsteps, right? So I could say that my mom wasn't necessarily a role model to me, but she was a possibility model right. of what could be possible. So I love that episode. I also think it's our most listened to episode. Really? Um, and it, it, it's just, it's a good one because the, when it went live, it went live in July of 2020. Uh, July of 2020 was the 30th anniversary of the American oh, right. Americans with Disabilities Act. But one of the things that happened, and I know we haven't chatted a lot about what Tiffany's advocacy hat looks like. But one of the things I had been advocating for was to get our mayor to declare July as Disability Pride Month. And people don't realize that I started drafting that letter and proposing it to the council in December of 2019. These these things take time. Wow. And, and the proclamation. Yes, congratulations on that. Thank you. And interestingly enough, I went to Alex and I said, you know, I didn't, I didn't do anything super transformative or super systemic. It was literally just a piece of paper that says that July is Disability Pride Month. And he goes, whoa, 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 Tiffany. (laughs) What you did was that you opened up a pathway for someone else to see that they could then take that baton and go, you know, advocate for affordable housing or Mm -hmm. accessible healthcare or those other things, you know? (laughs) And what he reminded me of is that I am not going to be the sole person to dismantle and eradicate ableism. But if I can do these little things, if it's a little letter, not a little, if it's a letter (laughs) that I wrote to the city to say, this is important to me and my community, I hope it's important to you too, as someone who lives in the same community. And they say, okay, then who's the next person who's going to write that letter, right? And I think it's just a, a lot of this season's episode, season two, has been around all of the different ways that you can advocate And for some people that's showing up to city hall, like I've done in, in that particular capacity Mm -hmm. for other people, it's using your social media, which you also follow and you've seen. Um, So I think I just want to show people that no matter who you are, I want to show people through the podcast that no matter who you are, you can make some level of impact. Cause I've also had disabled dancers on who Mm -hmm. really want to take a critical look at bodies and who can dance and who can't. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, something that I do for fun is I like creating, I call them their clone trio. It's like a filter on TikTok that uh-huh. makes one person into three people. And I turn them into dance videos. And I always <laughs> get comments on those videos that say, if you're so disabled, why are you dancing? Oh, wow. And I, really? Yeah. On, on, on a couple of the last dancing videos. And they're like, why is a dancing video on this page? And it's just huh. like, okay, I can be an advocate, but I'm also a human being who yeah. has a body. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, some, some interesting people on the internet, I get to engage yeah, with. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love the idea of the possibility model because there's not necessarily a role model that's like exactly what you want to be. So I think that could apply to anybody that there could be a lot of possibility models around for you. Yeah. And I like it too, because I feel like, what is it? Comparison is the thief of joy. And I oftentimes will look back at my journey and I will say there was a period of time. I still find myself doing this, comparing myself to other people. My following's not this, or Mm -hmm. this person, you know, Mm -hmm. got this opportunity. Right. And then I'm like, well, that's why we should actually, they're a possibility model for me. There you go. That's a great way to turn it around. 
for sure. And if I'm only looking at it as role models, that's when I compare, right? Because then I'm like, okay, this person did this internship and I did this internship, but no more of the role models, the possibility (laughs) models. And you mentioned this term called ableism. I don't know if a lot of people know what that means. Would you be able to explain that for my listeners? Of course. So in the way I understand it, and there is someone, there's a disability justice activist named Talila Lewis who has an expanded definition of it. But my understanding is that ableism is a type of systemic oppression that leads people and society to place value and worth on people based on their body and or mind. And I say body and or mind because you can have body disabilities and you can have mind-related disabilities. And so again, we come back to this whole idea of value and worth, right? Which I I know I've mentioned a couple of times on your podcast Mm -hmm. is that in layman's terms, ableism is discrimination on the basis of disability or stereotyping or prejudice on the basis of disability. But if we want to take a more, what is it, thoughtful, insightful look at what ableism really is, it's when we're judging people's bodies in our minds and saying, you're valuable, you're worthy, you're valuable, or you're not valuable, you're not worthy, which is so much of what I'm unlearning right now, right, is that Mm -hmm. I have inherent value and worth as a human being in a disabled body. Mm -hmm. Those can coexist. They're not mutually exclusive. As I mentioned, I have taken a look at your Wikipedia page, and you have quite a few impressive accomplishments. With everything that you've accomplished at this point, is there something that you're most proud of? Yeah. um, What I am most proud of is that I like myself. And uh, (laughs) maybe not the answer you were looking for, but it has taken me a long time to really feel like I deserve my place and my space in this world. And I I have a friend who who I've had on the podcast, her name is Nicole Cardoza. Mm -hmm. And she shared a quote recently. And she said something along the lines of, I'm falling in love with who I'm becoming. And I hope that I can embody some version of just continuing to fall in love with myself as this journey of life continues on. So that is what I'm the proudest of, is that in a world that continues to send me messages, I will acknowledge we continue to live in an ableist society, in a world that has continued to tell me that I should feel shame for who I am, it is really a radical act to like myself. I didn't have any preconceived notion of what you're going to answer, and I really appreciate that. Actually, very vulnerable of you to share that with my audience and myself. What are you working on these days? What is it that you're excited about these days? In general? Sure. (laughs) Well, I was like, I already told you about the three, the trifecta of the things that we're currently working on. Um, I'm excited about play. I think back to, you know, I shared that story of of New Year's and and this fantasy of just wanting to be a kid again. And I'm realizing that one of my growth areas is making space for that, for play. And I actually, I had a conversation with my coach right before we got on the call. Mm -hmm. And I was telling her that on August 5th, 2021, I had the most fun I've had in a really, really long time. What were you doing? uh, I I just met up with some friends for a taco night and then we ended up at like a karaoke bar and then we're like playing on a playground, right? But it was like, and then she she actually mentioned a few words to me and she was Mm -hmm. like, the words were like playful, 
spontaneous, safe. I was with friends. We were all vaccinated. I mean, we were, we were vaccinated. We were safe. Right. But but yeah, it was what was it about that experience that made it mm-hmm. so fun? Mm-hmm. And what do I need to tap into that place more? So I'm very fascinated with, or I guess I'm the most excited about finding more things like that. Because one of the things I've done is I feel like I'm very analytical and methodical in my thinking. I feel like I learned that from my mom. <laughs> and so when I think about play, I'm like, okay, Tiffany, go ride a bike. Okay, Tiffany, go get boba. Okay, Tiffany, go outside. Mm-hmm. But then it's mm-hmm. like, sometimes the answer just isn't as clear cut as, as that. It needs to be a full embodiment of it, mm-hmm. right? Because if I'm like, okay, it's on my to-do list to go get boba. And I, I actually love that I mentioned boba on a podcast about Taiwan. But, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, if I'm looking at it as a task and not something that I'm going to find like full enjoyment out of, then is that really accomplishing what I wanted it to? So that is what I am exploring. And I will say in 2019, after that party, and after I realized that I may have to be on a journey of exploring, if I do have PTSD, my intention for that year was play. So I (laughs) entered a pageant that year. I won. My talent was a dance. Um, Over the past year, I have found my way onto TikTok. That's also where I find a lot of play. So it's just really, yeah, again, thinking through what does the full embodiment of playful Tiffany look like? That's because I will, I will also acknowledge like a lot of my work is serious, right? And there is a curious part of me that is like, is there a way that I can incorporate more play into my work? But I also understand that I, I want people to take this topic seriously because, because I heard someone say the other day. So for example, the, the Paralympics are going to be, are going to be happening soon. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the Paralympics, and I, and I want to highlight that Paralympians are real athletes who have trained. It's not just one day a disabled person woke up like me and said, you know, I want to become a triathlete. So I, I, I want to acknowledge there's so much training and talent that goes into being an Olympian, a Paralympian, any type of athlete. Right. They're like any other professional athletes um, that are competing in the Olympics. Yeah. So the reason why I want to bring that up is because when we look at the Paralympics and oftentimes there are, the world is watching the Paralympics. We have so Uh many eyeballs in the Paralympics. Mm -hmm. Some people use the Paralympics and those success stories as a reason to not care about disability. Yeah. Please explain that. Oh, sure. Because we say, oh, look at this person who had to embrace or overcome so much adversity, and now they're winning a gold medal. Look at how far we've come in the disability movement, right? Mm -hmm. And so we look at these Paralympians, we look at them as the role models, right? And this is, I guess, where we create the distinction between a role model versus a possibility model, Mm -hmm. which is then we go to any disabled person and we say, oh, well, why can't you just be like that other Paralympian who did that? This person has the same injury as you. You can just go become that. And what that does is it kind of does like twofold. It kind of feeds into something within the disability community that's called inspiration porn. Yeah, I just saw a TED talk where the speaker was referring to that. Yeah, yeah, this it, it may from have Australia. Been, correct, uh, yes. Stella Stella Young. Yes, uh, the, that's the right. late Stella Young. So, right. um, the TED talk is called "Not Your Inspiration." Thank you very much, or, or "I'm Not Your Inspiration," or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that people sometimes only see us as disabled people to provide inspiration that you should have no excuses for being sad about your life. 
but I want to highlight that the human experience is to have the full range of emotions. So as a disabled person, I am happy and I am sad and that's okay. But yet we're only, but yet many of us are kind of like only put into this tragedy bucket that when some of us become Paralympians, it's such an inspiring story that we're saying, oh man, like life was so sad. And now you're so inspiring and you're this Paralympic athlete. I think I just want people to realize that our lack of human rights within the disability community is an emergency. This is like a human rights violation that, uh, I mean, even if we look at the Paralympics, there is a Paralympic athlete named Becca Myers who had to withdraw because she's deaf blind and requested that her mom join her as her personal care assistant. Mm-hmm. And they declined her request. Wow. So here we have an opportunity of a woman who wants to represent our country who yet is being denied someone that she needs to be her eyes and ears um, on, on the Paralympic uh, in the Paralympic campus, I guess I'll call. So ableism happening all around. I hope that your listeners who are listening to this uh, understand that all of us have a role to play in dismantling ableism, whether it's amplifying firsthand stories of disabled people or going back to your workplaces and seeing how you can hire more disabled people back on this point of economic self-sufficiency But just, I think, ultimately, again, coming back to this whole idea that how can we just fundamentally learn that disabled people are valuable and worthy just because we exist? I'm curious about the example that you just mentioned. Has there not been any other Paralympian that needed to have somebody accompany them? Like, was there has there been any precedent set, or like maybe this can be that it needs to be something revisited about the regulations? Yeah, and and I will also highlight um, we are still living through a pandemic. Um, it's getting worse. Uh, knock on wood. I just knocked on wood so that hopefully it get better. <sighs> so. I think in the past, she was accommodated, but due to a COVID environment, I think they were limiting the number of non-athletes who could attend. Hmm. But what she ended up sharing in her op-ed, and it came out Mm -hmm. in USA Today, was that for 30 Paralympic swimmers, there was one personal care attendant. Oh, wow. And what she wanted to highlight is that a... PCA, personal care attendant, doesn't intimately know how to deal with all different types of disabilities. Right. So it was like an accommodation was made, but not enough so that a deafblind athlete would feel like she had had the support there to feel safe. Well, I want to thank you so much for um, your time and sharing everything that you have on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you, where's the best way for them to find you or follow you? You can go check out my Wikipedia page. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So across social media, I'm, I'm Tiffany Yu. That's the letter I, the letter M, followed by my first and last name. And then if you want to follow Diversability, we are at Diversability across social media as well. And if you are a brand or a company that is ramping up your DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, we are starting to schedule things for 2022. Thank you so much for being on the Talking Taiwan podcast. I appreciate it. Of course. You've been listening to my interview with disability activist Tiffany Yu. If you've enjoyed this episode, go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. 
There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.